So welcome to Renewable Roadmaps. This is episode 13 and today is our first trip across the pond to the US and we are joined by Casey Saul, who is the Northeast Energy Market Leader at VHB and also the host of Offshore Wind Drinks, which is a US industry event. So first and foremost, welcome Casey. Hey, great to be here with you, Chris. Thank you for taking the time as well. And I've done a bit of a brief introduction already, but just for everyone listening, can you can you introduce yourself? Sure, sure, sure. So uh, Casey Saul, I'm here in on the Lower East Side of Manhattan in uh, the greatest city, second only to Manchester, New York City. And uh, let's see, I've been working in offshore wind since 2007, which for the US industry, that's really at its infancy. I worked for a firm called Blue Water Wind, and then have slowly progressed through the, in, through the industry since then. I'm very happy to have founded Offshore Wind Drinks this year, really as a ser really serendipitously successful networking organization for people working in the industry here in the US. And a lot of people from, uh, from the UK and elsewhere have joined us as well. Yeah, I've, I've been um, an attendee on a few occasions. Now, we'll, we'll come on to that in a little bit more detail. And um, good comment on Manchester and New York. I, I have been to New York a couple of times, which is also an incredible city. Um, I, I know you mentioned you started in, in 2007, but I suppose, where, where did this journey really start for you then into offshore wind? Well, I was working for the city of New York, working really in the, at that intersection of city and state government. So I had a good understanding of how government worked, public outreach worked. And I was recruited by a colleague of mine, Doug Feaster, who's now with the Renewables Consulting Group. And Doug asked me if I'd like to come and join him over at Blue Water Wind, a new company that was just starting in the industry, trying to do a lot of education about how the industry worked. What, trying to promote opportunities and utilizing, leveraging my relationships in city and state government here in New York, uh, work, to, work to progress that mission. Um, of course, the big crash came around in 2008, 2009, and, and we had to pivot and make a lot of changes. Nonetheless, it was an exciting time getting uh, the American Wind Energy Association on board, educating state stakeholders, uh, working with the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management at a federal level to see how they could progress offshore wind and leases. It was, a, it was an exciting time. One purpose of this podcast is, is to maybe help people that would want to enter the industry but might not necessarily know how or, or even if where the opportunities lie. So was this something that was on your radar offshore wind or was it something you mentioned you recruited were you made aware of it due to your skill set i was made aware of offshore wind primarily through my relationship with doug and his involvement in renewable energy and the and progressing of renewable energy it was a time when significant amounts of stakeholder engagement were absolutely necessary. And we needed to work very hard to educate how offshore wind worked, why it was important, why it worked particularly well for New York City and New York State. And 
it was really the leveraging of my background in public engagement, public education, and politics that allowed me to transition to this uh, to this world. And 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 so for people that are looking to move into this industry, particularly here in the United States, it's important to keep in mind that it's an industry that welcomes nearly everybody and has a place for, um, for any kind of background. So there's everything from government and policy, my background, uh, innovation and entrepreneurship, finance, engineering, all different kinds of science. Um, there's non-governmental organizations heavily involved in this, law, shipping, you name it, and you, it will come and lead to offshore wind. The important thing is to under, understand that so much of the business happens at the intersection of all of those ideals. And so how can you speak to the financing of an offshore wind project while you're still involved in the government? How can you help engineers understand how those turbine foundations can get built if you're working in the sciences and the geotechnical and phys geophysical sciences. It's a really wonderful opportunity again, and there's a lot of resources out there to be able to uh, gain knowledge about how those other elements of offshore wind work outside of your particular area of expertise. In regards to the landscape, it's obviously changed a great deal from you know when you entered up until now. What were the sort of early challenges that you were facing? The earliest challenges in the in the industry, and as I was as I was alluding to earlier, were just people really understanding. Now, why in the heck would you want to put turbines out in the ocean when you can just put them on land? Why don't you just put some on Long Island? Well, not understanding that there's not the wind resource there's not the there's transmission constraints there's a better wind in out in the ocean there's more opportunities to build an economy of scale out in the ocean um, and particularly here in new york that transmission constraint if you tried to build off uh, wind more wind upstate and trying to get that energy down into New York City and Long Island. It's really a, a very, very difficult. And so the constraint that we were dealing with at that time was educating everybody from the New York Power Authority, the New York uh, Energy Research and Development Authority, NYSERDA, educating the Long Island Power Authority, educating Con Ed, these are the local utilities, about how this worked. You really we really had to start at square one and, uh, and then deal with immediate concerns about visual impact and impact to marine mammals, shipping, et cetera. So there was, there was, there was a lot of the same types of constraints that we're dealing with now and concerns, but it was at the earliest stages. Right. And I suppose, obviously, the industry, your side is a lot different to the UK and, and, and the EU in terms of uh, getting projects permitted and, and things like that. So 
what what do the processes look like to get them get them done oh my chris it's it's arduous <laughs> it's, uh, let me let me give you a big a big overview um, and how things work here in comparison to how they work in the UK. So we don't have the Crown Estate, and, and, but we do have uh, anything further out than a, uh, two and a half miles is federal, federal water. And there's an agency, a federal agency called the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, we call it BOEM. And they're the ones who lease that land to, um, to developers. And so they go through uh, a lengthy process of identifying the correct locations by looking at constraints from shipping, uh, military use, current um, cables that are that are underwater, uh, fishing, you name it. There's dozens and dozens of constraints to look at. And then they identify the area and put those areas out for an auction. Once the area is auctioned, then a developer, say an Orsted or an Equinor, has site control. What they'll need after that is, is uh, an offtake agreement for the energy. And so that's a lot of where the states come in in setting up financial mechanisms for renewable energy credits or other similar types of, of uh, financing mechanisms so that there's a guaranteed offtake process that allows for their financing of these projects. And then the third most important element is really the permitting, or as you say, consenting of these projects. And that's where my firm comes in. BHB uh, works to, as a lead permitting agency to handle the federal, state and local permitting. But we work with BOEM over a couple year or more process to develop the science and um, present that uh, information correctly to BOEM, working very closely with a myriad of, of uh, stakeholders and then, and then get the permits. And then hopefully soon enough, all of those final permits will be done, probably first for vineyard wind and uh, we'll be able to start construction on those projects. Your role then, has that changed over the years or has it pretty much remained similar with your day-to-day -day activities? I've, I've held a number of different jobs in offshore wind, Chris, and, and um, to, today I work for this wonderful firm called BHB. And like I said, we are a, a lead permitting uh, firm and we, work, we would work directly for a developer in developing all of their permits necessary to build these projects. Um, like I said, I started with Blue Water Wind and Blue Water Wind was just a real, uh, a small uh, firm. I'm very happy to say that nearly everybody that works for Blue Water Wind is still works in the offshore wind industry. Um, Kevin Pierce, I just want to kind of give a shout out to these folks that are still in the industry. I, I mentioned Doug Feaster uh, earlier. Uh, we have Kevin Pierce, who's with Siemens now, um, Jim Lennard, who's with Magellan Wind out west, uh, Eric Stevens, who's with Vineyard in, in, in Rhode Island. Um, so there's, there's a, a lot of us still really still working. Oh, and Lori Jodzowicz is now with uh, U.S. Wind. 
Um, so let's see, we were, we were all working along, plugging, plugging our way through. We had a lease in Delaware and we had an offtake agreement in Delaware. And then we were bought by NRG Energy who, who was really excited about um, moving us forward with the process. Uh, but eventually they, they became um, a little bit wary of the process and, and the federal uh, process for developing these offshore wind parks weren't, wasn't as strong as they had hoped. So they, um, they let us all go. And, and at that time they did, a, they were very, very nice about it. <laughs> they, it. And I went off to do back in some government work and then eventually landed with Deepwater Wind where I helped uh, the great Clint Plummer uh, on the, his South Fork proposal. So that's now Orsted South Fork project uh, to bring energy to uh, from their Massachusetts area lease onto the east end of Long Island and really filling an important energy gap there. Um, after working with Deepwater, I went to a firm called Ecology and Environment, and then to Tetratech, and now with BHB. And again, these last three are really working in the consulting firm, primarily around, um, around permitting. One of the most exciting projects though that I worked on during that time was with uh, Ecology and Environment where we worked for the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, NYSERDA, developing their New York State Offshore Wind Master Plan. And this was really an in-depth study of the right areas, the financing mechanisms, working with all of the stakeholders um, from fishing groups to marine mammals, uh, to nearshore inter, uh, interconnection, um, and making sure that the state had all of the information necessary to promulgate a certain future for offshore wind. And it really became, I think, a model of what a lot of the other states look to to uh, develop offshore wind with uh, good science behind it. There's been a lot of activity recently um, on your side of the pond. So the landscape's changed um, quite a bit, really. How does it look now then in, in your eyes? Well, I think it's, a, it's an understatement to say that things have changed a little bit, Chris. It's that things have changed quite dramatically under this administration. The, uh, the last administration really slow walked the opportunity to develop offshore wind on the outer continental shelf. Uh, and this administration, the Biden administration has go, is going in um, whole hog on this effort. Uh, moving forward with new leases uh, in the New York, New Jersey Bight, which is that area uh, south of Long Island and along the uh, east side of New Jersey for new leases. Uh, and it comp complements the efforts that were made for the last four years and even previously um, by the states. So I, I had earlier, I had mentioned all of the work that New York State has done, and that, that's a work that's a little bit closer and nearer and dearer to my heart. Uh, but the same can be said for uh, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Connecticut, uh, Rhode Island, and uh, in particular, New Jersey, where they have a 7,500 megawatt goal. New York has a 9,000 megawatt goal. And then as you go further south, we have projects being and state efforts being made in Maryland, 
and Virginia and North Carolina. This new administration, as you mentioned earlier, is looking for even additional uh, opportunities to create leases further south, maybe in South Carolina, additional leases in North Carolina, uh, further leases in the Gulf of Maine, although that deserves a lot of uh, conversations, uh, and then even looking to West Coast leases uh, off of California, Oregon, and Washington. Of course, those would have to be for floating technology, and so a whole new level of effort being made there. Great, and all this growth, all this um, upcoming activity, how does it look from your perspective in terms of the skills required and, and the skills available? Obviously, there's going to be huge growth, there might be a lot of training requirements, may there be import of skills. Where does that look um, to you? Yeah, it's a great question, Chris. There's undoubtedly the industry is going to require uh, a whole new set and an additional set of experts to, to fulfill all of the jobs that will be uh, needed for the future of this industry. Fortunately, most of the states have developed work development opportunities um, to complement uh, this need and they recognized as a part of their future plans that they would need these development, these, uh, these, uh, this, this type of training. So they've done everything from work with universities like this um, State University of New York on Stony Brook, where they'll be developing um, technical engineers and experts to working with unions for the type of labor jobs that are needed for ongoing operations and maintenance, as well as shipping and port activities. Uh, I would say that if you have a background in port development, working in port, shipping and logistics, and or a desire to work in that field, then you should look to um, any of the state training opportunities um, for, for, to, to be able to, uh, to attend those type of courses or classes or complementary education. Um, <clears throat> a terrific resource to look to that, Chris, is uh, the Business Network for Offshore Wind website. Um, I can't recommend that enough for anybody interested in learning more about offshore wind and how it works, how to get involved, what kind of specific skills are involved, what's happening at every state level, uh, and where to get involved with workforce development. Brandon, who also has an Offshore Wind podcast I've spoken to, he may be appearing on, on my podcast in the not-too-distant future. He's from the network. Um, Terrific. He, he has the best voice in, in Offshore Wind. I know, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I might get him to record the introduction if he comes on mine. Um, <laughs> The, the, yeah, the, the network's really good, really good organization, definitely. So things have, like you mentioned, changed dramatically um, of late. I suppose that doesn't come without problems. What, what sort of challenges are you facing now? Sure. The most interesting kind of development that we are entering into at this particular stage, now that we can say, we have a greater 
amount, although not certainly not absolute, but a greater amount of certainty going into the federal leasing and permitting process. And we are looking towards a greater amount of certainty with this working with the state on the financing mechanisms. We are entering a time where the local concerns for interconnection and transmission are arising and can be can make a project uh, complex in its own regard. So if you take the interconnection of uh, the South Fork or Sunrise projects onto Long Island, both of those have been caught up in complexities around local jurisdictions, concerns about what ca a cable coming ashore will do to a beach, um, and, and really kind of based on a misunderstanding or and or a leveraging of local government and local jurisdictions playing off of one another. Um, and of course, what this involves uh, for a firm like mine is an even, and, and for developers, is significant stakeholder engagement. And again, education, 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 so that people understand there are already a myriad of power and transmission um, uh, and, and telecommunication cables coming ashore in that same area. Um, what, it, what the transmission will do to, if it's buried uh, alongside a roadway and how will that affect traffic? And then also uh, if it's overhead transmission, what that would look like and, what the, and how a uh, substation upgrade might look. Um, so it's really, it's the alignment in the big picture, Chris, it's really that alignment of federal, state, and local uh, interest to make sure that the future of offshore wind and the future of renewables, frankly, is, is uh, acceptable to, to everybody. And, you know, let's, let's just envision a future uh, not that far from now, you know, 2030, where we could have thousands of megawatts of offshore wind energy coming into New York City and Long Island, powering uh, some of our, our dirtiest buildings in New York City, uh, powering uh, your home on Long Island, uh, powering your apartment where you are now a part of a smart grid, your, uh, your car is being powered with renewable energy, uh, there's hundreds of new jobs <laughs> right, right out, of, out of New York City. We have five or six new ports in the New York Harbor, as well as smaller ports on Long Island for maintenance and operations. Let's not even, for, let's uh, keep in mind that there'll be new tourism opportunities, which I know has been kind of, a, again, a serendipitous uh, outcome of, of UK development and European development. People want to go out and see these tremendous new infrastructure out in the ocean. Um, how this, uh, how the industry is working with fishermen to safeguard their industry and make sure that, that commercial fisheries are, are protected as well as um, the, the 
art, the new artificial reefs that will be created from uh, offshore wind turbines and how that will help recreational fishermen as well. So it's a great answer. And so Vineyard is, would you say that's leading at the moment in terms of timescales of when it may be uh, consented, built and operational? Is, is that correct? That would be a safe bet. That would be a safe bet, but, I, but I'm not a betting man. <laughs> <laughs> what do the other sort of timescales look like then in that regard? There, there are other projects right on their heels, Chris. So we have, we have uh, Revolution Wind, um, uh, an Orsted project uh, that BHB is the lead permitting firm on. Uh, that's, that's also um, towards the end of the process. Uh, very excited about that. Um, the Sunri Orsted Sunrise Wind Projects, Orsted's uh, Southport Wind Project, um, and uh, other projects like Mayflower, um, Equinor's Empire Wind Project, Ocean Wind One in New Jersey. You're really challenging me to come up with all of these names very quickly. <laughs> and then, and then, and then, you know, really one of the most exciting projects is the is Virginia's uh, Dominion project, which is thousands of megawatts off of Virginia. Sort of very briefly touched on the sort of the East Coast stuff. The West Coast stuff is going to be predominantly floating. Then, as you mentioned, it, when that does progress further. That's right, Chris. It it will be um, the the outer continental shelf off of the west coast drops dramatically, uh, just just a mile off the coast, and so anything that's done there will need to be floating, and as as uh, everybody in Europe knows, floating technology is um, still on the cusp. Maybe is is the right way to say it, but um, uh, great projects out there that are utilizing that technology it seems to be safe, seems to be working well. Um, the price point seems to be really, really good. Um, for the West Coast, we'll really need to look at the science and the impacts on um, the fishing industry and, and marine mammals. These are highly sensitive areas that are protected um, and have uh, a lot of competing uses and uh, frankly a lot of people that want to protect them. Californians and other and, and Westerners are particularly uh, concerned with visual impacts and I don't think they'll need to be because these projects will be far enough off coast. But if you go to one of the most one of the most beautiful places on earth it's in Santa Barbara, California, there's uh, oil rigs right off the shore. And you, you'd be surprised when you go there <laughs> you have to look at these things. Um, but, but there they are, and, and you know, Californians aren't anxious to, to repeat that. Um, so, you know, I, I, would, I would look to Europeans to give us counsel as to how we should best be developing the future of floating wind and, and how that could uh, serve California, Oregon, and Washington. I feel like I may have put you to the test with some of these questions, but you've given such a, a really interesting overview of pretty much the whole market in, in quite a short space of time in a nutshell. 
So, so thank you for that. And sort of change, changing direction a little bit and something that is a passion of yours as well. So you did create the, the um, offshore wind drinks. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Oh, Chris, it's been so much fun. It's really been a blast. And, and um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I, I have to be quite modest. And in, in my intention was to get a few people together in a bar in lower Manhattan last March and uh, people who work in the offshore wind world so we could just network and share ideas uh, and have a pint. Unfortunately, we had to cancel due to the pandemic. We, none of us knew what was going to happen and what the world was going to be like over the next year. So I said, hey, let's get together. Um, let's get together by Zoom. We were new to Zoom, didn't even really know how to use it. And we had about 25 of us and we slowly grew it from there. We, we uh, got to 50, we got to 150, a couple hundred, had a holiday party. It was two hours long couple hundred people on that call and now this list is up to 657 as of last night um so we try to keep this you know I, I really wanted to be sure Chris that it wasn't a marketing thing that it really wasn't about um, my firm or me trying to sell ideas that this was really a place for people working in the industry to come and share and network and have a safe place to exchange ideas. Um, and, I, and I think that's come across. So we, what we try to do is each meeting, we open it up with a couple of quick announcements, keep it really easy. Um, then we, we move into a networking group. We break into small groups, five to seven or so. We kind of have a fun thing to talk about like your favorite dive bar in Manhattan. And then, and then uh, everybody introduces themselves, talks about why they're interested in the industry. We come back together, we have a short presentation, usually by a developer or a regulator, or perhaps one of the scientists working in the industry who, who can talk about a particular issue. That way, everybody becomes more aware of why the seafloor 30 miles out is important for the future of offshore wind development or why the National Wildlife Federation is an advocate for offshore wind, but also the protector of marine mammal species and how they could see those, in, those two things coexisting. Um, looking at the concerns of the military or the shipping industry or fishermen. Again, getting people to understand these ideas. So anyway, we have these short presentations. We try to keep them fun and light and moving very quickly. We break back into networking groups for five to seven minutes, come back, do another networking uh, or another presentation, go back into the pre uh, networking and then come out and finish up. For some of these, uh, we've, we've made specialty cocktails too at the beginning. So over the holidays, we made a, a special cocktail and then we had a, a, a St. Patrick's Day special cocktail and now for Cinco de Mayo we'll be making margaritas together. So again we try to keep it fun so that because we're all we all have Zoom overload and Zoom meeting webinar overload and we want to make this we want to make this different. Yeah I will be attending at the time of recording tomorrow is the Cinco de Mayo one so I'll be there for that. Um, Terrific. But yeah happy to share any updates on, on the following ones as well and 
coming coming towards the end now, Casey, I suppose I've I've got one final question for you, which is, I mean, you may have covered some of this off in, in the earlier conversation, but what does the future of, of the industry as a whole look like to you and, and then also the US as well? Sure. Well, let's let's um it's <laughs> it's going to be huge. <laughs> it's big, it's big and it's exciting. And it's going to make a significant difference in the amount of renewable energy that's brought to the country, the number of jobs and economic development, uh, the ports and tourism that will, be, that will be impacted. And it represents a great opportunity for you to enter a new industry, to transition to a new industry. And you know, we've been having important conversations over the past year about diversity and inclusion. And I wanna be sure that we are striving to include everybody in the future of this industry. We're going to be building ports in uh, parts of New York City and elsewhere that have been economically disadvantaged in the past and how we wanna be sure that we're involving everybody in, these communities. I, I want to make a note that these communities um, where these ports will be built have often been the same neighborhoods where peaker, dirty peaker plants have been placed previously, and we'll be able to do away with those peaker plants um, and utilizing renewable energy, uh, make those neighborhoods cleaner and safer as well. Um, the an important part of the future of the industry is not just going to be about these turbines out in the ocean and these and these huge um, infrastructure efforts, but it's going to be among the entire supply chain. So we're getting down to the shipping, the sciences, the interconnection. So it's going to be roadway work, and let's not even you know all the way to the caterers that are going to have to be there to service the industry. So there's great, great opportunities. And it, earlier I was talking about that intersection of how offshore wind plays at this place of innovation, entrepreneurship, engineering, science, finance, law. Um, and so it's going to take firms like VHB that has this background at being able to work at this intersection of environmental work, energy work, real estate work, civil transportation, land development, planning and design, as well as our expertise of working with federal, state and local governments with hyper local relationships, hyper local experience to be able to assist with interconnection and in particularly port development. And so we could really look towards the port development in each state. And these aren't going to be an either or thing. It's not going to be like there's just a port in New Jersey that's going to serve all of up and down the East Coast. It's going to take lots of different kinds of ports for the supply chain to be able to fulfill the future of offshore wind. So Chris, I think it's just very exciting. And, and you know, I was being silly by just saying it was going to be huge, but uh, it really is an exciting time to involve uh, yourself in the future of this industry. 
Brilliant. And yeah, really good job on, on giving us some insights to the US market. And I'm sure we'll have to catch up in, in the future and see where things are at in, in the not too distant future. But in, in the meantime, Casey, thank you so much for taking the time today. You bet, Chris. I'm looking forward to coming over and visiting you in Manchester soon. Absolutely. And I'll see you in New York for a drink uh, not too distant future as well. Take Fantastic. Care. Fantastic. Good to see everybody. Thank you very much. <laughs>